Turn in your copy of God's Word this morning to the book of Ezra, chapter 9. Ezra chapter 9, your bulletin says we'll be dealing with verses 6 through 15. I'm going to back up and start reading at verse 5. Remember this morning, these are the words of the Lord. And at the evening sacrifice, I rose from fasting with my garment and my cloak torn and fell upon my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God, saying, O oh my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. From the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt, and for our iniquities, we, our kings, and our priests, have been given into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plundering, and to utter shame, as it is today. But now, for a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant and to give us a secure hold within this holy place that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery. For we are slaves, yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but has extended to us his steadfast love before the kings of Persia to grant us some reviving to set up the house of our God, to repair its ruins and to give us protection in Judea and Jerusalem. And now, O oh our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you commanded by your servants the prophets, saying, The land that you are entering to take possession of it is a land impure with the impurity of the peoples of the lands, with their abominations that have filled it from end to end with their uncleanness. Therefore, do not give your daughters to their sons, neither take their daughters for your sons, and never seek their peace or prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good of the land and leave it for an inheritance to your children forever. And after all this has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserved and have given us such a remnant as this, Shall we break your commandments again and intermarry with the peoples who practice these abominations? Would you not be angry with us until you consumed us so that there should be no remnant nor any to escape? O Lord, the God of Israel, you are just, for we are left a remnant that has escaped as it is today. Behold, we are before you in our guilt, for none can stand before you because of this. This is the reading of the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray and ask God's blessing on the time this morning. 
Father, as has been mentioned this morning, this is, as all Sunday mornings are, a time of rejoicing and worship. It's a special time of rejoicing and worship because our thoughts are turned to the God-man, Jesus Christ, who was made flesh, who came to dwell among us, to be our God with us. But there are yet many troubles in our body, many sins that linger, and many trials that face us like high walls which we cannot seem to overcome. Would you help us see the one today who has conquered? In Jesus' name, amen. Well, beloved, this morning we come with a message from the Lord from Ezra chapter 9, a message crying out for deliverance, a message that demands an answer. And perhaps your mind has been thinking on these themes this week if you reflect on the text as you look forward to the sermon each Sunday morning. It's unlikely, though, that this morning will go by without you seeing some presence exchanged. Most families will. There will probably be a present you or someone in your family opens today. Maybe you already have. Maybe, maybe one of those presents will appear to you a little odd. The tearing of the wrapping paper is accompanied by a mixture of wonder and confusion. Nice. Thank you. What is this? Just a few days ago, Tammy and I gave our children one of those back massager guns. You know the ones I'm talking about. You can get them at Costco. We had one for the two of us to use, and whenever we had movie night with the kids, we'd pull out that thing, and Tammy and I would take turns giving each other the little back massage with the gun, and the kids were always looking at it like, can I have a turn, please? So we decided to buy the kids one, and I think it was Caleb the other day who unwrapped it, and at first, he opened the present, and he looked a little surprised, like, what? And then he got excited when he realized, oh, that's what it is. I get it now. Judah, who was sitting next to him, looked over at him as he unwrapped the present and said, Caleb, you get a man in a box with no shirt on. <laughs> really, buddy? Is that what's in there? Gonna have to take that one back. Now, you've probably had one of those moments where the present doesn't quite catch on first glance as you unwrap. It needs some splaining. What is this thing that I just received? Well, beloved, looking for Christ in the Old Testament can often be like that. You, you read a passage, and, and maybe in your devotional time, you kind of cock your head a little bit, and you say, I, I think that Christ is here somewhere, but... Am I really seeing him in this passage? And we want to be careful. We want to see Christ where he is in the Old Testament. There are people like Charles Spurgeon, for example, who saw Christ in every single stroke of the pen all throughout the Old Testament. He was the seventh 
rose petal and the rose of Sharon and the Song of Solomon, and Spurgeon had a sermon for it. And it was glorious. It always encouraged me, but I'm not sure that Christ was the seventh rose petal in the rose of Sharon in the Song of Solomon. You want to see him where he is, and you want to see him for our encouragement and the nourishment of our soul. Well, this morning's passage is intended for just this purpose, and, and actually this morning's sermon is intended for just this purpose, to help you see the Christ figure that Ezra portrays throughout this beautiful prayer that he prays in verses 6 through 15. If we're going to celebrate the Word made flesh today with all of our hearts, giving glory to God as the shepherds did with the angels when His birth was announced around 2,000 years ago, we must behold the Lord Jesus this morning, and we must see Him in the text. Before we begin, a brief word to those of you, to those of you who choose not to celebrate seasons like Christmas. Perhaps you do this from a personal conviction. For example, God never commanded us to celebrate the birth of His Son, or Christmas is so commercialized that I just fear uh, devoting time to, to, to thinking about the incarnation, even at the expense of what my children might get out of all of the present giving and things like that. Now, I'm not going to try and convince you otherwise this morning, we are going to be, as we often say, liberally minded towards secondary matters here at Christ the King. But allow me to say this, and I'll be mentioning this throughout the sermon this morning, that what we celebrate this time of year is the Christ who was God's gift for you. He was just as much a physical gift as he is a gift for our souls. It isn't inappropriate, and it can be a real blessing to gladly give gifts to those that we love this time of year in order to enhance our celebration of the greatest gift of all. The Son of God given for us by a cheerful Father. Because, after all, God loves a cheerful giver. And on that note, to those of you who are going to celebrate today, you have celebrated some this morning, perhaps you'll continue your celebration with family throughout the afternoon. I said several weeks ago, Christians need to learn how to celebrate. Beloved, don't be afraid to throw open the doors and sing and celebrate and feast and laugh with joy. Don't show or sow feelings of guilt and mourning into your children's hearts with quips when they open a present where it's strange and they don't know what it is and then they kind of think they don't want it and you say, well, now remember, there are other people in the world who don't have nice gifts like you do. Don't do that. You should be very thankful for every gift, but if they're not... You be thankful, celebrate, open the doors wide, and bring the joy into your house. You don't want your family to walk away from this day with anything but a heart filled with joy for all that God has done. So, we're repenting today of any humbug. Get rid of it, get it gone. Let's 
seek Christ this morning in the text, looking for the real meaning of Christmas. Well, turning to our passage this morning, Ezra chapter 9, we're beginning in verse 5. This is Ezra's, you might call it high priestly prayer for his book. He's praying for the returned exiles who, as we heard last week from Joshua, have now been found to be in gross sin. And this comes to you in real time. I mean, it's not a it's not a canned prayer, so to speak. It, it's, it's real. It, what, what is coming is just flowing out of a grieving heart, a man who is really broken over the people's sin. You can probably guess at some of his emotions. In chapter 8, verse 36, Ezra has gone out to deliver the king's commissions to the satraps and the governors. He probably went on a tour of the Judean area to make sure that everybody in the community now had the most up-to-date information on what Artaxerxes wanted for those returned exiles. They're being allowed to do X and Y and Z. So he had to go around and make those rounds and deliver that information. This is the new status quo. He's greeted as he returns by most likely... Jewish officials, it's probably some of the Levites that he recruited as he was returning on his return. They inform him that the first wave of exiles who return with Zerubbabel haven't separated themselves from the people of the land as God commanded in the Old Testament. Ezra breaks down and laments... He mourns until the evening sacrifice. And this is interesting. The text says that he rises from his fasting only to fall down again on his knees. And he just blurts this reaction out. This prayer comes from that deep place of the heart. As low as he's been. Now let me ask you, beloved. What would be... One of the first things that you would think to pray to God in a moment of deep sorrow like this. There's no question that opening your prayer to God in this instance, in this moment, with these circumstances, to open your prayer with praises to the King about His wonderful attributes, about His glory, about His holiness probably wouldn't be the first thing that, that would come to mind. Can you imagine yourself listing off things for which you are thankful? Pastor Toby Sumter, early in the fall, encouraged us to do just this thing from Philippians chapter 2. With everything, prayer and thanksgiving. Lord, thank you for this hard situation. Please help me. That's the way he encouraged us to pray. And that would be right. But would that be the first thing that would come to your mind? Wouldn't you start out with supplication? Oh God, you have got to help us. You have got to take this shame away. You've, you've got to cover it, Lord. You have to nail it to the cross of Christ. We need a Savior. Oh God, help us, please. That would not be inappropriate. It wouldn't be wrong to begin your prayer with those requests. 
The Lord, the psalmist says, is near to the brokenhearted. And he saves the crushed in spirit. But before we even dig deeply into this text, beloved, I want you to see this one important thing. Ezra's prayer from verses 6 all the way to the end of verse 15 includes no supplication. None. Not even one request. Ezra doesn't ask God for one thing. We're going to go through these ten verses. One of the lowest moments, perhaps this was the lowest moment in Ezra's life. And he doesn't ask God for anything. In fact, if you look deeply at the text, you'll see that he can't. He's so low, he's unable to even make a request to God. You might ask, well, why not? He is mortified that the people have done this. He is shocked, arrested in his soul. He is dumbfounded in the most literal sense of that word. This isn't a small thing either. The severity level of this moment is pretty high. Take, for example... A situation you could imagine perhaps driving through South Clinton. You become suddenly aware of blue lights flashing behind you. In a moment like this, a mood of severity would set in. Your blood pressure is going to go up. Your hands are going to tighten on the wheel. Your mind starts racing, asking the question, was I going too fast? Did I forget to renew my tags? What if he asks questions about all the supplements in my trunk? <laughs> Be a Christ the King member. You're surprised. You're serious. It's a tense moment. Now imagine a different scenario. You're sitting on an exam table in the office of your primary care. And he comes into the room with a quiet, slow step, and though he tries to hide it, a noticeable sigh. He has a clipboard that he clearly won't take his eyes off of, only to take a deep breath. Finally, as he looks you in the eyes, he tells you you have cancer. Now that's a different level of shock. A different kind of severity. We can say that anybody in that situation would feel a sense that they are mortified. Now this is much more, the second example, is much more how Ezra feels in this moment. I know that there are some here who would like to tell me that there's no comparison to having been told that you have cancer. And I'm not trying to make light of a disease like that. I do want you to remember that Ezra has just become aware of an outbreak of the one disease in all the universe that can damn his people's eternal souls to Gehenna forever. That is a place where no cancer 
will take you, but sin will. This, beloved, is why he is so grieved. It's the shock of ultimate shame. It is over that sin which he cries now. He is distraught, tearing his clothes. He's losing beard hair by the minute. And it's because of this gross sin. Even more significant in verse 6. You see that it's not. Even his sin that he's broken over. Oh my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. What is Ezra doing here? Well, it, it sounds like he's numbering himself among the transgressors. From Isaiah 53, verse 12, which if you listen today, by the way, the Bible reading plan doesn't normally have a Sunday section, but today because of our Advent readings, there is one. You'll want to listen. Isaiah 53 is part of the reading this morning. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. You can see just a little bit, a window opening. Ezra is acting as a type of Christ here. Hear this on Christmas morning, beloved. A passage like this can and should be used to urge the brethren to confront their sin. To look it square in the face. To see it the way that God sees it. To measure it according to the disgraceful, shameful, putrid, festering thing that it is. Each of us should. If you remember, that was one of Joshua's big application points from last week. We ought to respond like Ezra to our sin with a biblically appropriate shame that leads to real repentance and a turning from that sin to God. But if we make personal moral application our main focus this morning, I think that we'll miss the present that God recorded in these verses for us to find. This prayer isn't merely about ensuring you have the right response for your sin. It is about a righteous mediator for your sin. This morning, in What Child Is This? You sang these words. Good Christian fear for sinners here. The silent word is pleading. What was born in Bethlehem that day? A mediator for you. A perfect, righteous mediator. Ezra recounts the sins of the people here in this prayer, corporately identifying with the sins of the people, feeling the shame that the people ought to feel, expressing the appropriate remorse and grief. And even though Ezra asks for nothing, God 
hears his prayer. We'll see this next week in verse in chapter 10, verse 1. The people come to him and they do repent. Beloved, consider this. Daniel prayed this way in his pastoral prayer this morning. Not one time in your life have you ever looked at your sin exactly the way that God does. Not one time have you had the revulsion and abhorrence of it that you should. And yet, this is so marvelous. God responds to you today, Christian, as though you did. As though your every prayer for purity and sanctification were a perfect prayer. As though you actually prayed for purity and sanctification. Because there is one who mediates for you. There is one who cries out even better than Ezra. You want to talk about the true meaning of Christmas? One of my favorite passages in all of the book of Job is in chapter 9, where in a moment of desperation, Job begs God for this kind of arbitration. For God is not a man like me, Job says, that I can answer him, that we can take each other to court. There is no mediator between us to lay his hand on both of us. Let him take his rod away from me so his terror will no longer frighten me. Then I would speak and not fear him. But, Job says, but that is not the case. And I am on my own. Church, don't ever say that in the new covenant you don't have it good. Job longed to see the day that we see. The day when his words could be carried to God through the mediation of another. One who could address with flawless efficacy the throne of grace. There is one God, Paul tells Timothy, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. Consider this Christ who has become your perfect mediator, who has seen your sin as it really is and still took it as his own. And when he bore it on the cross to Calvary, this Christ has felt the shame and embarrassment of your wickedness when you were lost and alone and your iniquities had risen above your head. He considered that this was his burden to carry. And the punishment you were due, he said, that's mine to bear. This is the man, God himself, who ever lives now to make intercession for us. In the midst of our remaining sin and our ever so frequent failures to make it right with the Father. Charles Spurgeon once said, the very first link between my soul and Christ is not my goodness, but it is my badness. It is not my merit, but my misery. 
It is not my standing, but my falling. Not my riches, but my need. He comes, Spurgeon says, to visit his people, yet not to admire their beauties, but to remove their deformities. Not to reward their virtues, but to forgive their sins. That's what Ezra wished he could bring about with his prayer. And through Christ's mediation, that is what he has done for us. This is the punchline right up front, beloved. God's gift from heaven to you that we celebrate today is the mediator, his only son, Jesus Christ. Well, if you'll continue now with me, keeping your mediator in mind, look with me at verses 8 through 9. Ezra has opened his prayer ashamed for what the people have done. And now he gives praise to God for what God has done. Don't misunderstand. This isn't a wooden formula for your next prayer. You can't take Ezra 9 as an intercessory outline without seeing exactly what's going on here. This is what I mean. He didn't begin with confession and then... Stops his prayer and says, oh yes, and I need to do some thanksgivings. It's not that simplistic. What he's doing here is moving from the people's faithlessness to God's faithfulness. He lists God's faithfulness to the remnant. He says, but now for a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant. Now, if you're reading from another translation other than ESV, your text will likely include an adjective escaped in front of remnant. That is the accurate translation. That word does appear in the Hebrew. I'm not sure why the ESV left that word out of its translation. But whatever is the case, these people have just barely escaped. Consider the 600,000 men who left Egypt, led by Moses, an estimated one million plus people, if you include the women and the children, who went to settle in this very land that Ezra's now reoccupied. But about a thousand years later, which is roughly the time Ezra's writing, how many people are left? Over a million people, and it's down to around 50,000. That 50,000 are all that remains directly descended from Abraham. And that number is rapidly being polluted because of the intermarrying with the nations. Ezra lists God's faithfulness to restore them to this small place, Jerusalem, and to start over again. He says in verse 8 again, to leave us a remnant and to give us a secure hold within this holy place. The Hebrew word which the ESV translates as secure hold literally means a place for a tent peg. The kingdom has dwindled down from the days of Solomon when it covered parts of Egypt in the south, reaching as far north as the Euphrates River in modern-day Syria, to a place to put a tent peg in the ground. And this isn't, by the way, Ezra exaggerating. He's being realistic. If you compare the two kingdoms, 
what was and now what is, the contrast is stark. He lists God's faithfulness in enlightening their eyes and giving this brief reviving in the midst of what he acknowledges is still a kind of slavery. That our God may brighten our eyes, grant us a little reviving in our slavery. Consider they had left Egypt, having been set free from slavery to Pharaoh. And now they are slaves again, even in their own land. On Friday night, you sang Andrew Peterson's song, Deliver Us. The lyrics are appropriate here. Our enemy, our captor, is no Pharaoh on the Nile. Our toil is neither mud nor brick nor sand. Our ankles bear no calluses from chains, yet, Lord, we are bound. Imprisoned here, we dwell in our own land. The second line in that song sounds like Ezra prayed it himself. Our sins, they are more numerous than all the lambs we slay. Our shackles, they were made with our own hands. Our toil is our atonement and our freedom yours to give. So Yahweh, break this silence if you can. Lastly, in this second movement of this prayer, Ezra lists the faithfulness of God to not forsake his people. That he has granted them favor with the king of Persia for the sake of rebuilding this city. Let me go back to what I said just a moment ago. That this isn't a rigid shift in prayer from a time of confession to a time of praise. Ezra is still in lamentation here. Even as he praises the goodness of God. He is genuinely thankful for all that God is doing. But it's almost grieving to think through all these gifts that have been awarded to them. And that they've so quickly departed. From God's kindness. It's C.S. Lewis's proverbial playing with mud pies in the slums. Why? Because we don't see the glory of what a holiday away at the beach would really be like. I wonder if the people would have done this if they had given as much thought to God's faithfulness and these rich blessings as Ezra had. Perhaps we would think less of our sin this morning. And even our trials, if we paused to look at the glory of our Redeemer. Consider Christ interceding for you as your mediator. He wouldn't pray quite the same way that Ezra did. If Jesus were to pray for you today... He wouldn't be praying for a remnant. We're never called a remnant in the New Testament. The Jews are in Romans 9 and 11, but not us. Today, Jesus is praying for an ever-expanding kingdom. A kingdom that started out with 12 guys and maybe 100 or so others huddled in a room scared to death after Jesus ascended. And through many tribulations and trials, that group has expanded to a global network of millions. There are some reports that today, 
there are two and a half billion Christians alive on earth. Now, I personally think that number's bloated. But if we said that only 10% of those were Christians alive today, you're talking about 250 million people. If we only took 1% of those as truly born-again regenerate Christians, that's 2.5 million Christians on earth today. Jesus isn't praying for a remnant. And that Jesus, your Jesus and my Jesus, mediates a covenant for all of them. One inaugurated with his blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Jesus' kingdom is full of members who have been redeemed, but each, it seems, in need of so much work. Not one person has arrived, and some need perhaps more help than others. But Christ is mediating now for people in Clinton, Tennessee, and in Knoxville, and those that are brave enough to live in Canada. And the 7,000 left in California who have not bowed the knee to Baal. And to the illiterate tribes in Africa and Papua New Guinea. To the hardy souls in Siberia. And by His grace, maybe soon to be Uzbekistan. Beloved, that's the kingdom He's praying for. And with all those millions that he's praying for, Christ still stops each day to pray for you. Wonder of wonders, the glory of Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus is praying for regularly, he's praying for the enlightening of our eyes. But he's not praying for anyone who's still in slavery to sin. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. These exiles may have been slaves to the Persians, and you may be slaves to the state when they ask for your property taxes. But you are not a slave of sin anymore. No matter how closely you feel it. You are not in darkness anymore. You are not far off anymore. Beloved, you see now what your mediator came for. To bring you near through the sacrifice of his own blood. Brethren, God's faithfulness to you today. To give you a desire to covenant with this church. And rebuild this city after the likeness of Christ. And all the favor that we have received this year with the county commission. And with the gifts of this church are a sign. A sign just like the one that Ezra and company received. Favor from the Persians. We, God is saying, are not a forsaken people. We are a favored people. Ezra was stunned at God's faithfulness, that Israel had not been forsaken up to this time. And no matter how bad 2022 has been for some of you, and I know that it's been rough for just about all of us, your mediator in heaven has not given up on you. In Christ, beloved, you are highly favored. 
He has not stopped interceding for you, nor will he. He himself promised, I will never leave you or forsake you. Think about this. That's what God gave you when he sent Jesus into the world. One who would pray for you a better prayer than this. A Savior who not only saves, but one who saves all the way down to the uttermost. Far as the curse is found. Well, look at the next movement in prayer with me. Verses 10 to 12. Having thought on God and His goodness and His faithfulness to the exiles, Ezra now turns to the commandments of God particularly to those that the returnees have blatantly broken. It's at this point that the legal flavor of Ezra's mediation starts to come out. What do you mean by that? Well, beloved, we often think of prayer in familial terms. Jesus taught us to pray to our Father in heaven. Because of His blood and His sacrifice, we now relate to God as Father. But imagine a lawyer who's been charged with defending a client who has a really bad rep sheet. In spite of this colored past of his, the case against the defendant has been managed well, and it looks like an acquittal is expected. Then, right before the attorney goes into the courtroom with his final arguments, the relatives of the accused come in and disclose information that the defendant has been withholding. His lawyer is shocked. He opens his books, looks through the lists of now legitimate charges against his client, laws for which he legally cannot escape punishment for breaking. The lawyer, being a just and good man, gets up from his office, walks over to the courtroom where the judge and witnesses are assembled, and on behalf of his client, quickly confesses to the judge every way in which the defense has fallen short, hoping for mercy. For more lawyers like that. Now you see how layered this prayer is. Ezra identifies himself with the people of God in their sin, but he also stands for them as their arbiter, just like Moses did when the people of God sinned, having come out of Egypt and began complaining and worshiping idols in the wilderness. What he restates here is pulled from many different places in the Old Testament. That's why he uses the word prophets in verse 10 rather than speaking directly of Moses or Samuel. But the principal idea comes from Deuteronomy verse, chapter 7, verses 1 through 4. And I'll read that for you now. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it, and clears away the many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you, and when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. The principal command. You shall not intermarry with them. 
giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly. God doesn't have to give us a reason to obey. Here he graciously does. And our response, regardless of, well, what was this really about? What's going on? Our response should always be to the Father, yes, sir. Yes, sir. But you see, these returnees didn't. They intermarried. Some had even born children at this point, And their leading men were leading the sin here. And as we heard last week, some of you have intermarried with your own hidden sins. Sins that perhaps no one knows about. Sins that have grown to the point that they have bred other sins. It's getting worse and now you are not in control of your own house or even life anymore. Yes, beloved, confess it to God and to someone else. Yes, repent. Yes, pray and fast. But brethren, look to Christ. Christ, who has been praying for you on your behalf since you fell in to this sin. Christ, who has been admitting to God your guilt even while you're trying to hide it. Christ, who doesn't shrink back from the law of God that you have broken, but openly admits to the Father that your actions have transgressed His perfect ways. Christ, who already paid the price for your law-breaking, for your backsliding, for your complaining when you don't get the goodies that you want in this life, while overlooking every gift that God gave you. Worthy of endless praise to Him. Even while you're trying to cover up the goodies that you have hidden in the tent of your heart... And even while you're looking around you longingly at others that you'd also like to have. Christ, who in the midst of your sin has not for a millisecond loved you one ounce less because of that sin. Who has not wavered for an instant in his resolve to see you looking glorious on the day when he weds you. Who upon witnessing your fallenness again and again has not been slack in swinging the hammer of preparation for the place in heaven that he is preparing for you even yes today. Christ who with the recitation of the laws of God to his father, the laws that you have broken and continue to break, pleads perfectly for you because of his own blood. That there is now no more condemnation for those sins. Since he himself paid the price in full. Having himself taken the place of one who broke the law of God. When you broke Deuteronomy 7. The one that I read just a moment ago. Jesus took the punishment for that breach of faith. And gave you peerless righteousness in obedience to that and every other law break of your life. Christ, who knows that some of you have faced tremendous loss this year, and you've despaired at times of the faith 
and you wished you could just give up. And he hasn't let you, and he won't. That's who's praying prayers for you right now. That's what he has to say about the law of God on your behalf. This is who showed up on Christmas Day 2,000 years ago. What a Savior. Finally, having recited the law, Ezra moves to the expected punishment. This is why he can't bring himself to ask anything, because he knows it's coming. It's coming. Chapter 9, verses 13 and 14. And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserved and have given us such a remnant as this, shall we break your commandments again and intermarry with the peoples who practice these abominations? Would you not be angry with us until you consumed us so that there should be no remnant nor any to escape? You see here that he asks two rhetorical questions. After all that God has done, should we break his commandments? The right conclusion and answer is no, that would be idiotic. Whoops. Second question, if we break his commandments, wouldn't he get angry with us and consume us? The answer, yes. It would be just and holy and good for God to incinerate them in a moment in his anger. But listen to what Yahweh said to Moses after the making of the golden calf. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people and behold it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. From Exodus 32. Moses had to stand in the breach and pray on behalf of the people. Ezra is expecting God to say something similar here. And that's why Moses implored God for grace and mercy. Ezra's imploring God... But he's out of words at this point. In fact, he can only conclude with, O Lord, the God of Israel, you are just, for we are left a remnant that has escaped as it is today. Behold, we are before you in our guilt. And I think this is the most precious part of this whole passage. For none can stand before you because of this. Can you imagine what it was like to live on that side of the cross where a statement like that could feel so very true? The Messiah has not come yet. The remnant, still longing for a Savior, but still waiting. Nobody is righteous enough to truly intercede for the sins of all the people. Who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? Ezra says, none. 
There is none who can. Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for it is he who will save his people from their sins. It ain't none can anymore, y'all. I'm sorry, Ezra. It's not none can. It's one can. One can stand before the Father on the judgment seat of God. Do you see the gift of God this Christmas? Do you see the glory of Christ? Ezra may have ran out of hope. He may have been at the end of his tether. Even though he didn't engage in this sin with the people, he still doesn't have the sinlessness that he can rescue the people with. But Jesus does. I know many of you have been through a tough year. The trials of life have been so intense at times, and instead of quick deliverance from them, you feel like your prayers... For deliverance have been answered by God exposing more sin. More sin in you than you could have imagined. Like Ezra, you hit rock bottom. As I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, rock bottom unfortunately seems to have a basement. All of that sin that God has showed you this year, beloved. Oh, the gift of God. All that sin now has no standing in the courtroom of heaven. Because there is one who mediates for you. Who is with you. Who came to dwell amongst us and before us. This is heaven's greatest gift. The gift from whom all other gifts today will flow. And to which they ultimately Point back to the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, and the rod of his oppressor, you have broken, as in the days of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire, all the rebellion, all the sin. For to us a child is born. For to us... A son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness, from this time forth, forever. 
The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Ezra tried. He mediated. God heard his prayer. But there's no more need for sorrow for us, beloved. Because God has given us a perfect mediator. In fact, better than that, he's given us a mediator who's also king of the universe. That is your gift. This and every day. That's why you can turn around to your brothers and sisters today and say, Merry Christmas. Because there's no more condemnation. God has given you a king. Father, we thank you so much for King Jesus. We exalt and honor him today. And even in our weakness, trust that he mediates for us on our behalf, filling up everywhere we lack, everywhere we fall short. Christ is our sufficiency and our hope. Now as we turn our eyes towards the table of celebration, we want to praise Jesus. Enable us to do that by your Spirit. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.